Welcome to The Great Conversation, where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can change the world. Uh, I like to bring back um, different thought leaders who have contributed to The Great Conversation, touch base, at least on an annual basis. And uh, one, of, one, of, one of the best um, leaders we had participating in The Great Conversation is a licensed psychologist. He also is the president and founder of his own risk consulting company. And uh, he's, in, he's got his hands in so many things. He, he was part of the um, International Handbook of Threat Assessments, actually helping to write a chapter on the campus threat management programs, uh, mass violence advisory initiative um, with the International Association of uh, uh, Chiefs of Police, uh, he has been involved in the Virginia Center for School and Campus Safety, which is part of the Department of Criminal Justice Services. Uh, but he's not only an incredibly um, competent, he also is highly intuitive, sensitive, empathetic. And if there's, there's not a better time as we're coming out of the pandemic here to have me, Mr. Curious here, understand maybe what's changed and what he's being asked to do at this point in time. But let's catch up with Gene Dysinger. Gene, welcome back to The Great Conversation. Ron, it is always great to reconnect. And uh, as we said, in the, in, as we were preparing for this, uh, an annual riff with Ron at the minimum is what I need to sustain that spark of curiosity and excitement about the world. Because no matter how well I think I understand something, you are always able to ask a question that just leaves me wondering, why didn't I think of that? So <laughs> this is always great. Thank you for having me back. Well, all of you are experiencing, I'm, uh, Gene is now working on branding management. He's changing my podcast from The Great Conversation to Riff with Ron. So, <laughs> so Gene, once again, you're broadening your your competence in, in different fields. And I may give you my whole marketing in the future. Riff with Ron. I can remember that. Uh, I'm going to have to change my fee structure, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, so, so Gene, we, we've had so many great conversations over the years. Uh, by the way, what we, you and I initiated with um, at the uh, great conversation two something years ago around the personal resilience of leaders are is just as important as corporate resilience that they're working on as well. That's continuing. That's a trend now. I'm seeing it, you know, come up. Uh, they just had that uh, at a big conference the other day, and I, I just want you to know, I would we weren't talking about that before that event, as far as I knew. Yeah, I'd agree. Across the the different uh, collaborative environments that I get to dabble in and, and spend time with, there's a lot more attention. Uh, to self-care of the individual, the small group, as well as the, the organization, the community. And uh, what I also am intrigued by and excited by is that it's not just, you know, let, let's go for a run. So for the next two hours, I feel okay. But what do we do for ourselves? What do we do with and for each other to overall be healthier, be better, um, to have time for reflection? Maybe that's a better path forward than just go, go, go. And so it seems to me there's a lot more attention to the care and feeding of ourselves and our souls. Um, I probably mean that more in the secular sense than the religious, but whoever we consider ourselves to be as people. 
Um, and it, it, to me, it's, it's, really, it's really fun and it's really comforting to be around people who are oriented toward that. Because in all honesty, I'm not always, I'm not as good at that as I would like to be. Well, unfortunately, um, I was an A-type that had to learn that sometimes the straight line to the top is going to be more zigzagging and up and down. And it was difficult for me because I wanted to get things done. And, um, and learning mindfulness, learning the great pause, learning what Navy SEALs already know, and that is sometimes to go slow gets you to go fast, you know, in, in a much different way, right? So that, that was learned behavior. That didn't come intuitively. How about you? Oh, no, not at all. I, I can remember years ago, I, I had, uh, I was training to be a leader on confidence and obstacle courses and ropes courses up, you know, 40 feet up in the trees. And we were doing one of the exercises and the master instructor had, had across this wobble log about 40 feet up. And man, I was shaking like a leaf and uh, the, the log was even more than I was. And the, uh, the instructor said, just pause where you are. Now, take get a sense of where you are. Okay. Now get a sense of where you want to be. Now know the difference and be in the moment or you'll never get there. And to me, I got to tell you, I thought that was the stupidest damn thing I'd ever heard at that point, because <laughs> how am I going to get there if I'm just focused on here? But what I quickly learned and, you know, with, uh, with experience and the real time physical movement being the metaphor for the thought process, right? I, I had to center myself where I was to have any chance of getting there without falling off that log. And uh, that does not come natural to me. It did not then, and only slightly more so now. It's um, fear has always been an interesting study of mine, uh, whether it's uh, in ancient history with Alexander the Great uh, talking about fear and courage and what it's going to take to change your circumstances, but uh, to some of the old uh, creation stories around fear as kind of the first step toward, you know, slipping off the moral mainstream, if you will. Fear has a way of constraining you. If we look at Afghanistan, for example, right now, we just got in the news the other day that the burqa is back, right? They're, they're enforcing the burqa again. And we want to jump in and save those women. We want to jump in and save that culture from itself but we can't. They're going to have to face that themselves before anyone else can help them. Is that a psychologically healthy thing to say about another culture, Gene? Well, I don't know if it's psychologically healthy or not. I don't think it's terribly adaptive because it rarely takes into account the context. I, I mean, our cultural uh, mores, our behaviors and manifestations they, they evolve over time, in some cases, over hundreds, if not thousands of years, with all the complexities intertwined. To just look at a moment in time and pretend to understand that when not having have the lived experience of the culture, I'm not saying that never has, uh, has a value proposition to it, but I, I think it's a pretty short-sighted uh, view. Absolutely. And it goes back to that that the stories we tell ourselves maybe for hundreds of years are a much stronger constraint to us than any system of government or any people right that it's the stories we tell themselves they they can incapacitate us or they can inspire us 
Well, and you know, you and I were talking the lead up to this. In addition to the stories we tell ourselves, it's the stories that we subject ourselves to or are directed toward us with increasing power and volume in the last several years than what you and I grew up with 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? And so that, that volume and, and what we call the availability cascade means it's not just the story I keep telling myself locked in my perspective, but that gets fueled, reinforced, strengthened, and sometimes made more extreme by information that is targeted toward me. And in my sphere of work, we see that as a huge contributing factor to violence risk. So let's, let's pivot on that. That's excellent. We have something going on that's very unique to this time and place right now. And that is this glut of information, but also grooming us through different sources of the media and, and other things, right? Or the associations that are promulgating around the country, right? So here you are a risk consultant. You're having to deal with not only the organizational psychology, but also its protective psychology in the, in the security and risk resilience areas, right? But you have to deal with both. And hopefully you can help merge those two where yeah. it becomes endemic, you know, where security becomes endemic in that. But are you facing that head on? Is it changing the way you work with your clients? Well, yeah, because a lot of clients have not <clears throat> shifted to considering the impact of how <clears throat> their own information flows impact that, how external information flows impact that. And, you know, it, it, you brought up an example in the, in the lead on just, you know, corporations having to take stands um, in some ways on cultural and social issues in a very different way. I'm not saying they should or they shouldn't, but not all business leaders want to do that. They want to focus on what they're there to do. But if you don't do that, that seen as a, can be seen as a different problem, which in my arena fuels those unresolved grievances that are more likely to escalate toward violence. So I think we've just got many more pathways, many more trigger points, if you will, that can set us off down that path than before. So it's encouraging organizations to be mindful of that. It's not just, you know, you're uh, in the workplace violence arena, it was, okay, are people mad because we didn't hire them or are they mad because we fired them or didn't give them a promotion? Well, those things still exist, but now they're mad and uh, mad and escalate to more extreme behavior based on a variety of other influences that are not within the, uh, the purview of the organization but the organization can be subjected to the outcome behavior. So it's, you know, if we think about the threat management process, it's to identify the, the potential harm uh, element, the violence or, or harmful behavior uh, to assess that. And part of that assessment involves uh, a holistic inquiry, not just about what the concern is, but what's a root cause analysis of what's leading to it when that's available to us. You know, the, you alluded to um, a conversation we had just a few minutes ago before we hit the record button and uh, where I had shared with you that I was in a pool with an Australian who is trying to get in the head of an American. Mm -hmm. And he asked me what I thought the greatest threat to the world was. 
and I could have picked any issue. And I think he was kind of surprised at, at what I said. And I said, the greatest threat is democracy. The idea of a free constituency being able to talk about any issue in a civil forum as much as that can be, and then work through the process to decide how we're governed. That's democracy, right? And democracy is threatened because people just don't think it works. And it reminds me of kind of the uh, diminution of religion too, because people just said, wait, this doesn't work. This isn't timely, right? So we got a lot of things that just don't seem to work as a result of that. We get outlier stuff going on. Lots of information telling us what might work. And of course, things that are more efficient usually involves autocracy. There, there's an ancient story about the Jews who are traveling around the desert. And uh, they say, they say to, uh, they say to uh, God, we, we don't, you're too scary. We need a king. We need someone to make the decisions for us, right? <laughs> and God, in so many words, don't, don't come back to me, everyone, and, and say I got it wrong. I'm paraphrasing. God pretty much goes, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> it, it may be more effective. It works quickly, but it may not be good for you in the long run. But tell me, in that state we're in, when I said that to the Australian in the pool, are you seeing that roll out in society right now? Absolutely, because if democracy doesn't work, and you know, and that's uh, a the process designed is for for change to be cumbersome in some ways, to to help minimize that uh, that precipitous flip flopping that an autocrat can do that at a whim chooses to take us this way or that way, and so the process is designed with barriers in it to make that change, to, to give pause to the decision-making process, right? For reflection and what are the pros and what are the cons and what's the buy-in and what does the minority have to say about this? It's messy. It doesn't always work great. And, you know, I think that the, the pain point with democracy is none of us ever get all of what we want, right? And the best you can hope for in the majority is you got at least some of what you wanted. Well, if it's, but if it's not that, then what is it? And if it's that autocratic uh, approach, well, then who gets to be that autocrat and why? And where are they taking us? And does that help? Or, uh, or where do we have to go? It's not that they're taking us because I don't want to go, but there's no alternative. And so we're seeing that fuel violence. And that's, I disagree with you, Ron, and therefore I get to use and now name whatever violent or destructive act versus I disagree with you, Ron, and I, I need to have a voice as strong as yours, um, and we need to find a way through this and to be able to accept. I don't get all of what I want, but I get some of what I want to get toward what I think is a better place. I, I think there's much less tolerance for that right now. And, no, and now we add the information, the availability cascade, and so much of conspiracy theory is out there that's saying, not only does not democracy not work, but we, we are about to be replaced. Therefore, we must replace what is. 
And in my line of work, we're seeing incredibly strange bedfellows, sometimes from the left and the right is historically, uh, as historically referenced, and uh, coming together because neither one of them want the same end state, but both of them require the same transition state. And that is a change from what is. And so in essence, the enemy of my enemy is my friend for now. And then once we achieve that destabilization of what is, now we can fight over who gets to decide what will be. And we're seeing now this convergent of violent extremist ideology and action that is more complex. I, I've been involved, involved in counterterrorism issues for over 20 years. I don't think I've ever seen a more complex time. That's not encouraging. At the same time, this has always existed to some extent, but at the same time, it's being fueled and accelerated and made more pronounced by technology. And you have some views on that. I was, um, I was sharing the fact that I try, I really try to listen to left-wing talk show hosts and right-wing talk show hosts. And I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, I come out of one or the other being convinced partially of, of the argument they're making. I go, and I'm a pretty agnostic guy. I mean, I, I'm pretty open-minded. I'm thinking through their argument and their syllogisms, you know, their, their argument ladder. And, and you start getting sucked into the vortex. It's pretty interesting. Uh, but then you add to that the engines that track my behavior online, that track what I'm looking at and watching and start grooming me. You called it something the other day. What, what did you call it? The information is approaching us. We're not approaching the information anymore. Well, not, yeah, we're still approaching the information, but it's being fed on us and it's being dumped on us with tremendous volume and consistency. And it's very difficult to avoid, right? If you want to stay engaged with the world around you, broadly speaking, you're exposed to those different channels. I, I don't do much online on, um, in business social media compared to a lot of my peers in the field. Uh, in part to do that is you've got to be exposed or that exposes you to a variety of things and like you i choose to kind of kind of dabble and listen in on the extreme so i get a sense of where they are but i don't want my day-to-day -day consumed with that no. um and so but for those who do choose to stay actively engaged with those because there's a lot of positive things associated with it as well you know as well as I that those companies have developed algorithms to drive uh, consumer and customer interest and, um, and really let, let me feed you what you're interested in, or at least what my algorithms tell me that it's likely to be that you're uh, interested in. And in the aggregate, those things are remarkably effective in feeding up. And so now we keep getting uh, more and more of what we already believe or know to some degree but then the, those companies also know that to hold that interest, it needs to be novel or it needs to be more significant, right? Otherwise, we get bored with it. We move on to something else. Well, back to your comment now, you know, my enemy, you know, the friend of my enemy is my friend, you know, until I don't need them anymore. But if we go back to that, if you think about it, risk consultants now have a weapon that's now being used to to groom us, but they have the same weapon 
to track behavior online that may be very risky yeah. to the organization. But uh, so I'm, I'm kind of interested as a, um, as a licensed psychologist, <laughs> you're unique. This is, this, you know, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but in a, in a strange way, in a strange way, you are one of the few that could actually create a bridge from security, risk resilience and security, to helping the organization tell a different story about who they are. You could do that as a licensed psychologist. And if you think about it, since most people live lives of quiet desperation inside their companies, which adds to their, their behavior, right? If you think about it, um, that would be an interesting thing, bridging, the, bridging those two spheres. You know, I, I, you're very gracious. And uh, it, it strikes to me that uh, we're all psychologists or more broadly, uh, we're all um, have some expertise in human behavior because we live as human beings. And uh, if we're attentive at all, we learn from our successes. And more importantly, I think we, we learn from our, our mistakes or at least have the opportunity to. And, uh, you know, and uh, I think there's a variety of folks out there who are, who are taking advantage of that lived experience and helping organizations do exactly what you just said. And uh, so I don't, uh, I don't think there's anything magical about being a clinical psychologist or forensic psychologist that helps some do that. In fact, I might argue that that can, that can put limitations on how we come to view things. You know, I, it's a quote attributed to Mark Twain. There's dissension about whether he actually said it or not, but when your only tool is a hammer, every problem becomes a nail. And some of uh, us psychologists, and as you know, I was also a sworn law enforcement officer, we're used to using certain tools in certain circumstances, and they become over familiar to us. And so you end up using that tool maybe more than what you ought to when it's not the best tool and you're not even the best person for the job. So that's my hesitancy in response to your very gracious. I, I, I get it. But at the same time, you are dealing with, I know you're dealing with this. You're dealing with silos of information right now. Always. And, that, and the silos are anchored, propagated by, we're in an era of specialization, right? We raise our kids that way now, specialization. We don't teach them to see the whole picture. They don't, we don't teach them widen the aperture of their thinking and the what and what they see and how they see it. So that's all I'm saying. As you work with risk resilient security people to design the future of let's call it endemic security inside the, the company, yeah. can, can you, will you influence, will security, your, will your clients themselves have the opportunity to influence the culture at large? I think we're seeing more of that. I, you know, I, I do think we've got a long ways to go, yeah. but I'm seeing more and more of security leaders within organizations being at the table with other senior management and really throughout the organization because that grassroots and in some organizations, those mid-level or uh, front-level managers, those are the ones that really influence what the experience and the culture is like. Um, in the organization, not so much the CEO. And so th those that engage well at all of those levels, um, I, I think are, are changing. 
um, some of the, the culture. And that we're also understanding as security professionals, it doesn't matter how good your policies and procedures are. If people don't understand what, what the purpose behind them is, right? Meaning and purpose. If we go back to Victor, Victor Frankl's uh, perspectives, um, if you have a sense of meaning and purpose, you can accomplish a great more. You can, you can survive horrors like the Holocaust as through Dr. Frankel's experience, right? And so it's translating those into a meaning and purpose rather than this is the policy and you just do it. And how that helps us and not, I, I think we're also advancing as safety and security professionals by understanding that the health and well-being is fundamental to the safety and security. And I think the pandemic has heightened that awareness more than ever before. Totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was, I operated off a negative, apologize. And the negative was, the threat was there all along that um, sickness was a weapon. Uh, HR had dealt with it in a different way called wellness programs and things like that. Uh, but the pandemic drove it home and it brought security to the table, which is really interesting, right? So health and well-being, adaptability, agility, cultural stories around meaning and purpose of ourselves and that helps us with our security stance and posture. Those are wonderful things, Gene Dysinger, which is why this has always been a great conversation. What, what's next for you, Gene? Well, I'm going to go back to our conversations about self-care and resiliency. So um, it's a beautiful day in central Virginia. So what's next for me acutely is taking some breaks, some sunshine, some fresh air, because I don't do that as consistently as what I ought to, and kind of clear my mind a little bit. Uh, I also know from prior conversations with you that uh, after we hang up today, uh, I'm going to be reflecting on what you asked and wondering, now, why the devil did he ask that that way? Because I know Ron's very intentional in his approach. And uh, so I'm going to be analyzing this conversation uh, after I get a little bit of a breather um, and um, thinking through what I wish I would have said that would have been more pithy and profound. And in reality, Gene knows this. Uh, Gene was the most pleasant distraction today from painting. And I, I just want you to know, because I'm on this great project to paint my garage. Who, who paints a garage? Someone to, with too much time on their hands. So, Gene, thank you for bringing me back to the real world. This has been a great conversation with Gene Dysinger.